Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 30, The We Free Men. 30? Goddamn. Been a minute since we've been able to record. I think both of us had a lot of life stuff suddenly happen, but we're back. Yeah, we're back, which is which is strange because like we're recording this before the previous episode has gone out because of yeah. like how chunky it is. And so we're like, we're back. But then by the time listeners hear this, we'll have already been back by uh, like a month. Both of us, I think, had a lot going on the last couple of months, but we definitely are back. We're excited. We're on episode 30. I'm excited to dive right in. This is definitely a book that has a special place in my heart. We're going to be talking about The We Free Men today. The We Free Men is the 30th Discworld novel, as mentioned before. It's the second young adult Discworld novel after The Amazing Maurice and His Educated Rodents. And it's the first novel in the Tiffany Aching branch of the Discworld. You've read some Tiffany Aching. These are some of the only Discworld books you've read before, right? Yeah, before the series. But when I read this one, I I realized, like, I know I said it at the end of the last one, that I didn't think I had read that one. and No, I, I definitely haven't. So I feel like it was Wintersmith, I Shall Wear Midnight, and Hatful of Sky, because I didn't read The Shepherd's Crown. Okay, so you've read, like, the middle three. I do now have it in first edition hardback. Wow. Thanks yeah, you've to been eBay. collecting first editions lately. You've been sending me some pictures. Yeah, this is this is a new thing. I knew this was coming, and I kind of wanted a physical copy of it, because I wanted a physical copy of Nightwatch. And I got it in the, like, corgi paperback, and then I was like, hmm. And then I had been, like, looking at first editions, because I had already bought some, like, original run Sandman. Sandmen, perhaps. <laughs> and I was like, oh, let's see if I can get this. And then I got this for, like, dirt cheap. This was, like, five pound on eBay. Like, I missed the original bid. And then I messaged this out and was like, hey, I wanted to bid on this, but... I wanted to bid on this, but I had to leave the house. And the seller was like, okay, I'm going to relist it. And I'll just close the thing as soon as you bid the reserve price. So I got it for £5. Since then, I've gotten all in one big box. First edition, Nightwatch, Shepherd's Crown, Thief of Time, Thud, Monstrous Regiment, Nation, which is not Discworld, and not a first edition, but a first book club edition of Reaper Man. Oh, wow. That's a lot of them. That's really exciting. That's you should post some pictures to the Twitter over the next couple of days, so that way we can get people hyped. And uh, now this is this is where I I, I uh, turn around and I say, if anyone has first edition, like UK copy, perhaps of the Color of Magic, like the hardback one, the original run, I would like it. Please, would you <laughs> would you like to send it? <laughs> would you Would you please send me it? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, please contact yeah. us. Um, you can just tweet at us at Nanny's Book Club or message us, or you can email us at nannyogsbookclub at gmail.com. Let us know. Uh, Nigel would like a copy. Yeah, because there was only, 500, only 506 copies were oh, wow. printed in the first printing. Yeah. And it's really strange because it's like, doesn't seem to be the original artwork that we know. Because it's the first one. They're like discovering like what it is, right? Discovering the style. Yeah, hold on. I'm going to I'm gonna send you a photo of it because this looks wild. I think this might be the US one though. Oh, yeah. 
this is like almost more like a over oversaturated Discworld look. It's not as like cartoonish or poppy. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I also have some book news. It's not as exciting as as your book, as your first editions, but because the book okay. depository closed, because Amazon closed it, I ended up ordering the rest of my hardbacks of the series. So now I have all of them in the same hardbacks cover, and I'm very excited about it. I will also post a picture of that soon. But let's, let's talk about The We Free Men. This book is very well regarded in a lot of YA fantasy communities. It was listed in Time's The 100 Best Fantasy Books of All Time. It's the only novel by Pratchett by himself to make that list. The other one is Good Omens. There is also supposedly an adaptation in the works being developed by uh, Rihanna Pratchett and the Jim Henson Company, which is... A collaboration that seems like it would work really well for this type of story. So the the last news I could really see was an announcement a couple of years ago in 2016. So I'm really curious to know how that's going. But it does, to me, that would be a very exciting collaboration for this particular book. But there don't appear to be any other adaptations of it so far. That would be really interesting. But now I'm like wondering... In this adaptation, like, first of all, would it be live action? And then second of all, would it be like puppets? You know what I mean? Yeah. I know they've done sort of realistic practical effects, you know, like with the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance on Netflix and stuff. Because just like, but in my head, when I'm thinking of tiny puppets, like, I, I, I can't really conceptualize pup or like on that scale, that small scale than having them be puppets. In my head, they're just like the sort of Muppet felt thing. That's the only way I can visualize them <laughs> at, um, at that tiny. Here's a fun game that the listeners can play. Pick a Discworld novel, and every character in it is a Muppet except one. Which one is it, and which character do you keep as a human? <laughs> or, well, as, as a real, like, non-Muppet. Right, uh, yeah. There's many non-humans. This would be a really good exercise, actually, and... I think just off the top of my head, without having thought about it at all, like at all, I think that just off the top of my head, the non-Muppet characters should be Vimes. Everyone else is Muppets. That was also mine. Dear listeners, if you think that there should be a different character that is the only human in a Muppet adaptation of a Discworld book, please let us know. I'm. This is a fun game. I like playing this game. I'm actually going to tweet that out on our Twitter right now um, so we can hopefully get some results in real time. That'll be really awesome. We can read them at the end of the at the episode. Let's jump right Let's in. Let's do it. All right. So quick summary before we get started. Nine-year-old dairy maid Tiffany Aching wants to be a witch. She's pretty sure that her grandmother was a witch, and she dreams of going to a magical school to learn witchcraft. But when her little brother goes missing, she has to step up to be the witch of the chalk sooner than she expected, with little help from little men. Nigel, you've read a couple of Tiffany Aching books before, but you haven't read this one, which is the technically the first one. What were your first thoughts reading this book, this first Tiffany Aching book, in the context of what you had read before, but also in the context of the Discworld stuff that we have been reading for this podcast. I mean, like, we've seen the Knack McFeagle before in the series. Carpe Juggalum. Yeah. 
So, like, I'm used to them. But, like, they're so much fun. Like, this book is just infectiously fun. But, like, in terms of the context of the series as a whole, I think it's really, like, interesting because this is the first YA book that's really, like, part of the Discworld, if you know what I mean. Because, like, Maurice is fairly self-contained. Right, yeah. Like, wait, wait where does where does Maurice take place again? It's essentially nowhere, right? Like, it's, it's not a location Uberwald, we've seen. But it's, like, a town we haven't been to. Yeah, like, like Uberwald is a fairly big place, you know? It's not like it takes place in Ankh-Morpork or... Bad Blintz. or... Bad Blintz, that's what it is. Yeah. The chalk is fairly self-contained, because in my head, I was like, oh, this takes place in the Ram Tops, like... Like the chalk is part of Lanker and the ram tops in the hills, but no, it's separate. And so, like, you have that distance, but then it's also more connected, obviously, with Nanny Og and Mistress Weatherwax showing up at the end, like, like they're a cameo at the end of a Marvel film. <laughs> We're here to talk to you about the Witch Initiative. The Witch Initiative. <laughs> I don't want to join your boy band. I'm I do want to talk about that scene at the end because I think it's really interesting, especially because like a Marvel movie, in some ways, it teases the fact that they are going to be a bigger part of subsequent books. So, you know, it is it's an interesting thing to talk about in terms of Granny and Nanny's stories are over in terms of their branch, right? Carpe Juggalum is the last of those particular books where Granny is the main character. Tiffany is the main character of these books, but we do get to see these two characters that we have grown very fond of have an influence on her, especially in Hatful of Sky, which is the, the next book. So it's interesting that we kind of get that teased here a little at the end. And I do want to talk about Granny Weatherwax's, her interaction with Tiffany. But I think before we do that, we need to talk about Tiffany first. Tiffany is fascinating because she's like so clearly like a witch archetype, same way that Granny Weatherwax is especially. But she's also like really in the Sam Vimes character mold. Oh, in what way? I hadn't thought about those two characters together. Yeah, because this is something that I'm becoming, I'm coming more and more around to, is that like in each of the like series, there's one person who fits this kind of archetype who has to be the good person, whether they like it or not. Like you first start to see this when Tiffany is talking to Mrs. What's the other witch's name again? Miss Tick. Miss Tick. I was about to say Titch, but that's not. Because she says it's like, she's like, it's a witchy name, Miss Tick. And Tiffany says, really, oh, yeah. it should be Miss Teak or Miss Take. <laughs> she has a sassy streak in there. I do like that. You know, where, where she talks about first sight and the second thoughts and how, she, like, that's the part of her that holds her to herself. Part that keeps an eye on her in the same way that Sam watches the Watchmen and who watches him. Oh, well, he does. In the same way that Granny Weatherwax, like she looks after the people in the Ram Tops, and it says in, I think it's Carpe Jugulum, where it talks about how like she'll help people pass when they're when they're sick, like you would an animal. She'll uh, like essentially euthanize them, or assisted suicide, I suppose. If it's if it's a human, is that the correct? I don't want to like be offensive. No, I think you're um, you're right. Yeah, physician assisted suicide. Like even Rincewind back in 
sorcery he was the the killing he he wasn't the killing kind of wizard and he was the only person who stood up for you know an abused child when all the other wizards wanted to just kill a child which i feel like we didn't like i know that's the old faculty and now we've got uh ridcully and them but it's like they were definitely going to kill a child right you know and it's like the little things then in that interaction i think really like set this up and also tiffany as a character where it's like she buried the cat because someone had to. This is a type of thinking that we've seen from Granny Weatherwax a lot, right? Like, well, who makes the choices? Well, I do. Why do you get to make them? Because someone has to. It's this idea that, like, it's almost like narcissism. We've talked about this before. Like, this idea that, like, I'm the one who has to make the choices. But it doesn't... It's more like... It's a duty, right? We have a duty, is what tiffany says like this idea of like i'm the one who's best equipped to do this and not only am i best equipped to do it but i'm the only one who's here i'm the only one who understands what's going on no one else is going to do this so it has to be me yeah and this is something that like comes up with the queen then later on and tiffany's third thoughts which is the like being a witch is fundamentally a selfish position but then use that to your advantage Tell, tell them it's mine essentially like draw a line in the sand this far and no further like Discworld seems to be positioning i know we've talked a lot about how like the watch books are positioning like an idealized version of what a police force can be that like effectively engages with community and representative policing and stuff but i feel like each of the strands uh, and the series as a whole effectively puts forward like a moral argument of what human beings can be in the face of like what's really sort of like like a world that makes no sense and is just callously cruel like this those book uh those book quotes on the blurb where it's like they compare pratchett to like let's say jonathan swift are really apt not just because of the like satire element but like that sort of 18th 19th century novel thing of like this is a moral tale uh, at the base of it. It's funny that you say that because I was actually thinking of a very 19th century genre, which is the Bildungsroman. Oh, the Bildungsroman. Ah, English undergrad. I love the word Bildungsroman. Bildungsroman. I don't like analyzing them. <laughs> well, but that's what the We Free Men is because it's not just tiffany it's tiffany coming of age but it's not just that it's her sort of transforming from a child into not not an adult but into an adolescent right she's leaving behind some of the more simplistic ways of thinking and starting to transition into a place where she has to learn about self-critique she didn't have to have a weird scene in a sewer to do it. Right, exactly. You know, it's, it's, although it does remind me of Labyrinth in the sense that, you know, like him saying like it, well, you know, you keep saying that this isn't fair, like who told you that it would be, you know? And so there is a little bit of that in there. This is also very much, and, and I didn't realize this the first time because I, I was an adolescent when I read this the first time. This is very much a story about grief, Granny Aching, her grandmother, who she's very close to, dies two years before this book starts. And there are so many of these 
interjections into the text, you know, in italics, these sections that are just her remembering her grandmother or telling stories about her grandmother. And so there is, it's not just that she's transitioning into adolescence, it's that she is processing and dealing with this very deep grief that she has for someone that seems like the only person who understood her. Yeah, this book really hits different reading it for the first time, like, not just since, but like for the first time at all, after my granny died, because like, I'm not going to be like, oh, she was the only person who understood me, because I feel like that's an inherently narcissistic, solipsistic version of the universe. But like, we got on really well and stuff. But she died just before I did my like end of secondary school exams. And I just like I could feel that throughout this entire book and those like interjections where it was like like especially when she's trying to convince mrs tick that um granny aching was actually magic and then it's like oh she put the lamb in the oven and it you know it came back to life and it's just a warming oven that kind of like it's just normal things i'm gonna get in my nigel quotes the mountain goats real early on this one because i also like i associate this with my granny as well this it, it's from the song matthew 25 21 which is about a loved one dying and going to be with them in their last like moments and it's uh you were a presence full of life upon this earth and i am a witness to your life and to its worth and i like that idea of a witness because in these interjections that you have these memories of granny aching there is this fairy tale mythological component like Granny Which Aching, I do want to talk about later. Oh yeah, for sure. Granny Aching is a larger than life figure, both for the chalk as a society that she's really the person who's in charge in quotes of the chalk, just like Granny Weatherwax is really the person who's in charge of Lanker, even though she's not the government of Lanker. We all Duke. Yeah. we all know that Varence isn't going to do anything to piss off Granny Weatherwax, right? Yeah, and that's that's something that they say at the end as well, where it's like it all it's always good to meet a happy witch. Yeah. I think it's interesting too that she's mythologized in Tiffany's mind as well. Because I think that this happens a lot with elderly relatives that we're close to or mentors that we're close to. This idea that like when you're a child, like everything they do seems magical. Everything that they do seems like like they know so much more than we do and they understand the world better than we do. And, you know, they're, they're, they make everything okay, especially for someone who is clearly as lonely as Tiffany is. You know, it's very clear that she hero worships her granny. And it's interesting because as she's telling these stories and having these memories, there is this sense that as she's growing older and she's realizing things about her granny that she didn't at the time, right? Like, oh, you know, the warming oven brought the lamb back to life. Like, I thought that was literal magic. I realize now that that's something that people do to, like, revive a lamb that's close to death. But there is this sense of comfort that she gets from the idea that just because you know how it's done doesn't mean it's not magical. And that reminded me a lot of Granny Weatherwax. Like, this idea that, like, she does things that people think are magic, but it's really headology. It's finding yeah. the magic in the small things, the small ordinary. I put ordinary in quotes, the small ordinary things. Not to keep jumping to the end, but like they do say that it's it's most often 
just common sense stuff and like yeah there is magic and it has to be fairly simple to do or else the wizards could never do it <laughs> i love but that. the most important part the most important part of doing magic is not doing it yeah hold on my dogs are going crazy you know like the whole uh, i feel like the quote the best illustrates it is that one from vector you know the like you know you can have all the drones and bombs and you want in the world but like you need an agent in the field to decide when not to pull the trigger right it's just interesting that you have this and you have Tiffany kind of learning how to be a witch on the, you know, on the fly, on the road. But the only reference point that she really has is her granny, who is dead. So she can't talk to her. She can't ask her these questions. And the fact that she can't brings her a lot of real grief, right? This idea that, like, I wish I had been older. I wish that, you know, I had known what to ask her. You know, I wish that I would have been old enough to have that that presence, right? To know like what our relationship how important our relationship was and it that to me is also this the related to the idea of adolescence right like when you're a child you interact with grief in a very different way than you do when you're an adolescent or when you're an adult because you know more about the world and you know you know you i think you miss that lost time you know oh like if she had still been alive like this is how i would want to interact with her now there's a lot in here about that. What's that quote from a series of unfortunate events? I feel like I've brought it up before on the podcast or maybe on a different one. The one about the death of Uncle Monty. Yeah. It is a cu- it is a curious thing, the death of a loved one. We all know that our time in this world is limited and that eventually all of us will end up underneath some sheet never to wake up. And yet it's always a surprise when it happens to someone we know. It is like walking up the stairs to your bedroom in the dark and thinking there is one more stair than there is. Your foot falls down through the air and there is a sickly moment of dark surprise as you try to readjust the way you thought of things. You best believe I gave up to Lemony Snicket when I interviewed. I was like, why the fuck did you write that? It's such a good way of describing that feeling with the death of a loved one. Just sort of like, it's not just that you're sad that they're gone. It's like you're mi- like a big part of your life has suddenly gone missing. And there's no way to get it back. Mm. You can't replace that piece. And so it is interesting that Granny aching and, you know, and Tiffany even says at one point, like everything went wrong after she died. And part of that is because there's no witch. We find that out later. Right. Because Tiffany hasn't taken over as witch yet. And the Kelda is weakening. Right. And I definitely want to talk about that. But the fact that since Granny aching has died, the Baron's son has gone missing. The the mob killed this person that they assumed was a witch, which frankly is one of the more horrifying things in this book. And I, I want to talk about it because like it's just it it is like the way that Tiffany describes it is very much like a child who doesn't understand like what's happening, but now she's starting to realize like what's happening. She's realizing the role that Granny played wasn't just like, oh, she was a cool person who lived here. It was she was the one who made sure that everyone that everything worked she was the one who kept an eye on the chalk and on herself and she was the one who made sure that these people you know didn't become like a mob like they do when they go after i'm trying to remember her name the person they thought was a witch snapperly yeah mrs snapperly and it's you know, and, and that's what inspires her when Miss Tick asks her why she wants to become a witch. Tiffany says, so that doesn't happen again. And to me, 
that says a lot, not just about Tiffany, but also about how she views Granny Aching's role in the society at large. We keep coming back to this concept of a reckoning, that a reckoning will happen. And like in the scenes, because you have this parallel between what happens with Mrs. Snapperly when Granny is dead and the lady, oh, what's her name? The one who steals a baby? Yeah, uh, female infant Robinson. Yes. Yeah, where they're going to, they're going to send her to a, like a, essentially like a mental institution and granny steps in and she says, I think there's another way we can do this. And like, I feel like there's a very important parallel between the two of those and the concept of the reckoning, like, or when granny decides to help the Baron and save his dog, you know, by, by letting the sheep face it. Uh, And then cause she says, not for gold, not for silver, for you, the law, word was break. Do you remember this? You sit on high, you know, you'll have cause to. This is something then that, like, Tiffany picks up, the, like, the idea that there's going to be a reckoning. You have to speak up for people who don't have voices for themselves. If you don't, if, you, if people take advantage of that, there's going to be a reckoning. I do find it kind of horrifying that Granny Aching dies. And, like, I mean, it had to be within, like, a year that the Mrs. Snapperly thing happened, just like timeline wise. And yeah. like, like how quickly they all kind of dissolved into this mob mentality that we've been talking about since the light fantastic. I mean, like that little detail about them killing her cat is mm. just like, it's so horrifying. Like Tiffany obviously like wasn't there when that all happened. Like she came later to bury the cat and to, basically do some CSI around like Mrs. Snapperly's cottage because she wants to understand what happened, but she doesn't because it's an act that is not understandable. Like you can't comprehend the cruelty of such an act. And so it just like, it's like these people need someone to shepherd them. Like they, it's like so fast that they forgot everything that granny aching stood for. I feel like this is one of the most messed up things that's happened in in a Discworld book, like, and it's only it's only really like alluded to. After he vanished, they went out to her cottage and they looked in the oven and they dug up her garden and they threw stones at her old cat until it died and they turned her out of her cottage and piled up all her books in the middle of the room and set fire to them and burned the place to the ground and everyone said she was an old witch. Yeah, I like how Mystic is surprised by Tiffany's conviction. You buried the cash? Yes, someone had to, said Tiffany hotly. And you measured the oven, said Miss Tick. I know you did, because you just told me what size it was. And you measure soup plates, Miss Tick added to herself. What have I found here? Tiffany has a very strong sense of what is right and what is wrong. And she gets that from Mm. Granny Aching. And I... I mean, I agree with you that this is, like, really messed up. I mean, she she basically starves and freezes to death, Miss Snapperly. Like... yeah. And nobody helps her at all. And that clearly made such an impression on Tiffany in terms of like, no, clearly this place needs a granny aching. And so no one else is going to step up to do that. So I guess it's me. It's so heartbreaking then when she meets the when, when she's talking to the Knack McFeagal and they're on about how they're doing stuff and they come in and they, you know, like they find lost sheep and animals and things like that and they take the the jolly sailor tobacco that's been left like how people still come to 
granny's house, you know, and essentially like pray to her. Yeah. She is like a, um, like a shepherd's deity almost. Yeah. But they don't remember what she stood for. Like, that's the thing is that they ask, like, it's like they deified her, but they won't actually like, like she would have never let that happen. But then how Tiffany, like, she's so enraged and upset that it's the Mac McFeagle. And then she has to like, like, cause she thought there was some chance that her, her granny was still alive. And that gets back to the grief, right? The, the realization Mm. that maybe that connection you thought was there, isn't there anymore. Are we going to, are we going to Kubler-Ross this (laughs) this whole book? No. I was going to ask, so, and this is kind of related to what we were just talking about. So the chalk is a new setting of the Discworld. We haven't been to the chalk before, although I believe it's been alluded to in some of the Lanker books. I don't know as much about British geography, but I do know, like, it's also called the Wold, right? That's, they say that's like the older way. And there are Wolds in England and Scotland, right? Yeah. 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 There's like a really famous one. Well, I, I don't remember what it's called, but it's like something Wald or the Wald of something. It's really like famous because that's where they got a lot of the like wood for um for the uh, Industrial Revolution when they started like burning wood. Yeah, because you've got Wald, which is, and then it's like that's connected to the earth, and then you have Wield, which is like the sky and things like that. But also the chalk feels very much like like the Cliffs of Dover is a very chalky area, as is like the Burren in Ireland, which is this karst limestone landscape. So like they're they're really cool landscapes um when you're actually on them. Like have you seen photos of the the burn in County Clare? Yes, I have. I didn't realize that that was kind of like a similar I didn't realize it was chalk. Yeah, it's all it's all limestone and it's part of the like inspiration for Emin Wheel in Lord of the Rings. Oh, that is really cool. Yeah, I'm like looking at some pictures now. This is kind of what I imagined the chalk being like. But yeah, it's like that green, she calls it a green sea, right? There's a lot of comparisons between the chalk and the sea in this book. And it's not just because of the Jolly Sailor, but just like Lanker for Granny Weatherwax, Tiffany feels a strong connection to the land. You know, in, in Lanker, we actually see the land like, or in Lords and Ladies, for an example, which is a book that we should definitely talk about in relation to this one, the land actually comes to speak to Granny Weatherwax, right? Through all the animals. And in this one, it doesn't do that, but Tiffany is very attached to the idea that like she is an aching and the chalk is in the aching's bones, right? Like her family has this long history on the chalk and it's connected to Granny Aching, obviously, who also used to say that these hills are in my bones. And so what do we think about seeing this belief or this connection in a character that's not Granny Weatherwax in a place that is not Lanker? Okay, yeah. So I was going to talk about some of the more like metaphysical. Yes, please. Things of it. But uh, no, no, but like first, I like that they're tying the concept of witchcraft in the in the disc world to the land because like a lot of old school witchcraft was very like earth-based and you know like in communion with nature like throughout history you know like you have the whole like herbal remedies and things like actual witchcraft not the malleus maleficarum view of witchcraft 
And I know like modern age witchcraft is more like, or at least the, there's more schools which are like crystals and things which are also from the earth. Now in a fantasy setting, we can have physically, we, we can have it physically be tied to it. But then as well, as a parallel with Granny Weatherwax, having her have the land in her bones is like she's going to be the one who's going to watch out for the chalk in the same way that Granny Weatherwax looks out for the ram tops, like like almost an avatar nearly. Yeah, that's interesting. Like this idea that like there has to be someone to speak for the land. And that's what she says right near the end of the book. Like somebody has to speak for the land. And it's it, it's not this book doesn't really get into like a chosen one narrative as much, but it is this idea that she has sort of been chosen by the chalk to embody yeah. that. And part of that is, of course, managing the people on the land because the people can do all sorts of things to the land that, that you don't that you don't want. Right. There's sort of a give and take there. And especially, uh, I really loved the scene. It's just such a little moment where it's when the Baron sends his servant, the first servant, to come talk to Granny Weather or Granny Aching about his dog. And he, the guy, rides up on a horse and he doesn't get off. And Granny Aching narrows her eyes a little bit because she does she doesn't like that because the iron hoof, like the iron shod hooves, cut into the turf. And that that's it's such a little moment, but there's this idea that like this is unnecessary. There are some things that are necessary for humans to live on land. There's that relationship of give and take with the land, but the idea of cutting into the land for no reason is is abhorrent to her. But then we also have a really interesting parallel, which I've only just made when you brought that up. When Tiffany's dad comes to get her at the end. It says that he rode out on a horse and he forgot even to put on the shoes. Yeah. After Tiffany has made this connection with the land. It also is connected back to when Granny Aching dies, how they bury her. They cut up yeah. the, the turf and pull it back. And then they, you know, they bury her and then put the turf back over it. And they burn the house on wheels, which, by the way, a house on wheels is such a cool image. I, I always thought that Granny Aching's house seemed really interesting. And so, like, all that's left is the wheels and the stove because those are iron and they don't burn. But even Tiffany says, if you go back there now, like, if you if the wheels and the stove weren't there, you wouldn't know that anyone had ever been there because the turf had healed over the grave. Like, she doesn't even know exactly where Granny Aching is buried. And it seems right for someone like Granny Aching and Tiffany. Like, I'm not going to do anything that's going to disturb the land. I, I want the land to heal around me almost. Would they have that line that the hills were in her bones and now her bones were in the hills? Yeah, and then this is something that they talk about as well, and Pratchett returns to in the author's note about the tradition of burying a shepherd with a piece of wool in their coffin. Yeah. Um, even gods understand that a shepherd can't neglect a sheep. A god who didn't understand would not be worth believing in. Which reminded me of in the last hero where uh, they talk about a god of policemen it's like anyone calling themselves a god of policemen you know you'd be suspicious of you wouldn't want to believe in it's that that other theme we've been talking a lot about during this series this dedication to your craft right this dedication to your job and your role in life like that comes first yeah before 
religion or spirituality. Although I, I would say this book is actually very spiritual. It's just spiritual in a very... I mean, it literally ends with forever and ever world without end. Like, you might as well just put amen at the end. Right, yeah. It, it's a very spiritual book, but it's spiritual about, like, the day-to-day things. Like, the rhythms of life on the chalk. And again, like, it's mm. just... It, that goes back to the, like, just because... It doesn't stop being magic just because you know how it was done. You know, type of mentality. What were some of the mis- metaphysical things that you wanted to talk about when it comes to the chalk and her connection? Well, like, first of all, I thought it was really interesting when Mrs. Like in the the very first chapter, when Miss Tick realizes that something is going wrong and she's like, well, there's no witches here. Like, like how she talks about you can't do magic on chalk. And obviously, like you can through the events of the book and then Granny Weatherwax at the end talks about how no, you can because of the like Flint and Flint is the king of stones. But I'm trying to see if I can find the actual... You know, it's what's funny is that this also... I mean, it's it's only funny in a tangential way, but it reminded me a lot of the whole, like, everyone knows Ankh-Morpork is built on loam. <laughs> yeah, that reminded me of it too. But, like, now I'm wondering, is the construction of Ankh-Morpork on loam... Is loam more conducive to wizards? which is why oh. the university is there. But also, also Ankh-Morpork is famously just built on more Ankh-Morpork, as we saw in Men at Arms, which I feel like uh, I feel like we really de- need to go about making like an Ankh-Morpork lo- built on loam truth or something. Sure, I, I said the exact <laughs> phrase in a different episode. I'll need to find it because I, I want a shirt that says that. Yes. If nothing else, just so I can wear it. And the uh, Windlepoons fan club. Yeah, the Windlepoons fan club. You should get on that. Make us some t-shirts. <laughs> yes. Like that whole thing of like it essentially like Mystic believes that it's like essentially leeches out witchcraft. Like the, you can't do it because it's it's not like solid ground. You need to be like we have this idea from her still of being connected to the earth. Like but she needs a physical one. But then like when you think about limestone, because chalk is just limestone, it's it's just a different version of carbon. And it's made from thousands of like little bones, uh, like, you know, sea creatures and stuff that have been deposited and compacted and stuff. So like it, it's physically made out of life in a way that like other rocks aren't. Ba- basalt and granite are, are made from cooling lava. And things like, I'm go- I'm going back to like secondary school geography. I know geography I'm like here. thinking about like when did I learn about limestone? I had to be like second grade or something like that. Sandstone is made out of sand that's been compacted and like crushed and sort of fused, but like nowhere else really do you get this like accretion of of, of bones of, of things that once were alive. And she talks a lot about um, like finding like fossils in the in the chalk in the limestone. Yeah, and then I really loved, like, love, love, loved the descriptions of when Tiffany communes at the land when she faces the queen at the end. She heard the grass growing and the sound of worms below the turf. She could feel the thousands of little lives around her, smell all the scents on the breeze, and see all the shades of night. The wheels of stars and years of space and time locked into place. She knew exactly where she was and who she was and what she was. Very much like an avatar moment, like you said. 
She swung a hand. The queen tried to stop her, but she might as well have tried to stop a wheel of years. Tiffany's hand had caught her face and knocked her off her feet. I never cried for Granny because there was no need to, she said. She has never left me. She leaned down and the sentries bent with her. And also I want to point out that like the wheel of years is a real thing. Or like like the phrase wheel of years is a real thing and it's tied to the Sabbaths of like especially of Wiccan belief. So you have like the four main ones and then you have like the half ones. So like you you've got your Imbolc, which is in February, Lunasa in March, Belt or sorry, Imbolc in February, Beltana in May, Lunasa in August, and Samhain in October, which is also most of the ones which I think is really interesting, most of those are also like the Irish names for those months. Yeah, so you've got eight main ones. Yule, which is the between the 20th and 23rd of December. Imbolc, which is like a pagan Irish festival, not the month, on the 1st of February. Ostara, 19th to the 22nd of March, which we know is Easter, especially if you've read American Gods. Beltana on the 1st of May. Litha from the 19th to 23rd of June. Lunasan, 1st of August. Mabon from the 21st to 24th of September. And Samhain in, on the 1st of November. Yeah, it's interesting to me, like the connections here between like the chalk and Tiffany and how she feels this. She feels possessive of the chalk, but it's almost like the chalk also feels possessive of her. But also like you can't hold that much power for that long, which really reminded me of. Um, have you read Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman? Yes, I have. Like when they go into the ocean and they talk about how like when the guy whose name I've forgotten and Letty are inside the ocean where they talk about how it's like all the knowledge in the world, you know, he says, Oh, you can stay here forever. And they're like, would would you want to know all of that forever? Would you want to essentially not be alive? Right. You wouldn't be yourself anymore. You would just be like, it's like um, Bran from uh, game of Thrones. Like when he becomes the Raven, like, he's not Bran anymore. Not really. I never got that far in Game of Thrones. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, like, he becomes, like, the Raven, which is all this accumulated knowledge, right? And it's he is forever, like, transformed by it, basically. Like, he can see the future, he can see the past, he can see everything, but he's not Bran. He's not even really human anymore. I also think just on a, like, very, very tangentially related note, it's not even, like, Discworld related, just... One of the books I'm reading currently is Peter Frankopan's The Earth Transformed and Untold History, which is like, it starts off thousands upon thousands of years ago, and it's like charting, yeah, it starts off 4.5 billion to 7 million BC, about like the formation of the world, and it's like, it's essentially a book about climate change and how the world has worsened, but it really goes into like, how human beings are effectively tied to and have tied themselves to the land. Like these climactic factors made people grow. Like one of the things that I thought was really interesting, and now obviously it is it is kind of depressing, trigger warning for talking about the slave trade, but like it's talking about how there was this climate emergency happening. Uh, one stage where it was like really warm. And so then a lot of the African countries 
switched to growing maize because it was easy to store and hard. It, it was hard to like rot. You could get two crops in in the same time that you could get one crop of sorghum and it had more calories. But that essentially like helped perpetuate the slave trade because they were more like nourished and they had more energy. And so then people going in and perpetuating the slave trade and taking these people were able to like work them harder then. And then also like one of the things I thought was really interesting was like thousands upon thousands of years ago, the bit that connected the UK to Europe was this like place called Doggerland, which I think is hilarious in itself. But that flooded because of like a massive rise in uh, the ocean level. And that's basically indirectly responsible for the Brexit vote. Oh. Because if England wasn't, or if the UK wasn't like split off, you wouldn't have this like an island unto ourselves mentality that really like forced the the pro the pro Brexit rhetoric. It's a fascinating book. I'd I'd recommend it. I'm definitely adding that to my my to read list. That's interesting. So. The other thing I was going to ask, and this is also related to a few things we've talked about, but also Granny Weatherwax. Granny Weatherwax calls what she does headology, but Tiffany describes what's happening to her, and the Kelda uses this as well, the first sight, second thoughts, and then later we start seeing her doing what she calls third thoughts, which is her thinking about how she's thinking about what she's thinking. And I wanted to kind and of perhaps 20th thought yeah. near the end because her head is so full of thoughts. So like, well, let's start with first sight. So she asks the Kelda, you know, are, aren't you talking about second sight? And she says, no, first sight is when you see what's really there, not what ought to be there or what you expect to be there. What do we think about this concept of first sight? That's so cool. Like as a description, but also like it, it really crystallizes a lot of like the ideas and and themes around both witchcraft and like holding yourself to the mark and being the one who is accountable and makes the decisions seeing what's really there and cutting to the bone of an issue when sam vimes has dragon king of arms arrested because he's like a fucking eugenicist you know, but he he understands that like well, nothing's really going to change. He doesn't expect the the fairy tale ending, and we even have some of that in this book where we talk like we're following on from both lords and ladies and witches abroad with the whole like elves and fairies and the concept of stories and fairy tales gaining power. You know how they talk about like all the nightmares are gonna are gonna wake up, and so then to have to have that then positioned as, well, you see what's really there. Like how Tiffany sees what's essentially the queen's true form. Like she knows that, that that's a front, which is not something that we really got in Lords and Ladies. It was that like the queen also, can I just say that the queen and the fairies and, and, and the elves have come back and they're no less terrifying. Oh yes. Book. No, they are still the same amount of terrifying. <laughs> I mean, but that's the first thing she says is like, as soon as she sees the queen, the first thing out of her mouth is that's not what you look like. Like that's what you dream you look like. Yeah. And her third thoughts are like, watch her face. You can, you can see it like flicker, uh, you know, when she stands up to it, like it's it's uncertainty. No one has really done this before to this queen. Cause it's not the same queen as in Lord, Lords and Ladies, right? I always assumed it was the same queen, the Queen of the Elves. 
I thought that, but then at the same time, I feel like it's not be- just because like some of the dialogue and and like descriptions makes it seem like she hasn't faced the witches. See, I think it is the same because she is queen of the elves, and this is fairyland. And there is also that story of like the king leaving her, which is a big part of Lords and Ladies as well as that Naniog yeah. goes and gets the king, right? Which I have written in my notes, did they break up again? Question <laughs> mark. But like, and it's very similar to some of the things we saw in Lords and Ladies, right? Like the the parasite universe, you know, coming over the chalk in this case and like the things bleeding through both ways. That was such a cool description just of that, where it's like how it talks about the things not not being real, but also not quite unreal. Like the blobs that turn into trees, all of that was really interesting. But to me, I also think it's the same queen because of the way she talks about witches. That to me sounded like, you know, like, oh, because she said stuff like that in Lords and Ladies too, right? Like, the witches aren't as good as they used to be, or, you know, the witches are are weak, you know, or whatever. But then also, um, they do describe her true form at the end when Tiffany is grappling with her, which very much reminded me of those folk tales, you know, about you have to hold on to the creature no matter what shape it shifts into. You, you know what I'm saying? You, you yeah. know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of different fairy tales that are like that, where you have to, like, keep a hold on on uh on the villain and whatever that she becomes or he becomes it's even in ish like there's a version of that in ish with the the ritual of chewed where you know they tie tongues and also just you remember the, like the big man that the king comes out of in yeah um, the long man lords and ladies yeah yeah there's like loads of that but what i what i forgot then is the long man and like the real life cern giant in dorset they're carved into chalk oh they're part yeah. of the chalk hillsides but just like that and then they mention in this as well the like things drawn into the chalk as if they're meant to be seen from above mm-hmm. this is a picture of the the cern or churn giant <laughs> that's yeah that's just a real thing that's in a field in england that's hilarious but yeah i mean but that's in lords and ladies too right where she nanny og tells casanuda you know, look at it from above, like, you know, or whatever. It, but when we see her, when we see the queen shift into her real form, that happens in Lords and Ladies. It's just a very brief moment where Magrat is, remember when Magrat attacks her because there can only be one queen? We do see just, Magrat says just for a second, her image flickered and she saw something that was small with huge eyes, you know, and and so Magrat didn't get a good look at what the queen's form was actually like, but you do see that flicker. You do see that that realization that she's not who she appears to be. I, I was going to ask you, so like, if this is the same queen, let's just assume that it is. How did you, what did you think about this version of the invasion of Fairyland versus what we saw in Lords and Ladies? I like that it's a different approach. You know, where it's like, there's less of a physical invasion. Where it's like, it's not necessarily taking over the bodies of people and bringing in, like physically bringing in elves and fairies. She's not trying to marry the Baron. (laughs) Yeah, like, she's trying to terraform, terror form, uh, (laughs) the chalk and, and all of their reality by way of dreams. 
which also the drones. What the fuck? The drones were intense. And that's the other thing I wanted to mention is that in Lords and Ladies, we see like a glimpse of Fairyland. What Granny Weatherwax and um, I'm trying to remember her name, D- Diamanda, the the other, the young witch. Diamanta, Diamanta. Yeah. They are in Fairyland for probably like a couple of minutes, but then they come back out again. This, we have whole chapters. Tiffany and the Knackback Fiegel are trying to make their way through this frozen landscape, which, by the way, is very the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? Like, it's always winter there. Oh, yeah. Like, Roland is literally Edmund, the, the, where they talk about sweet meats, and it's just Turkish delight. Yeah. <laughs> the queen here is very much aligned with the witch, the, the white witch. What is her name? She, I know she has a name. Yeah, I've forgotten that too, but it's very like Jadis. aligned with the concept of, yeah. Because she's like a younger sister of Lilith or something like that. Like it, it's it's really weird, like how, like he just like slips that in. How Christian C.S. Lewis like, was. Yeah, but like he just like slips that in there and it's like, what does this have to do with like, like it's never developed. It's just like, oh, she's a descendant of Lilith. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah but like one of the things one of the things she says is like or this actually might no i think it's in the magician's nephew (laughs) they you know have the building of the wardrobe and things like Mm -hmm. that but where it's like where they first meet them and they're like oh bring a a daughter of eve and a son of adam and that might also be in the lion the witch and the wardrobe i don't remember it is it's like two daughters of eve and two sons of adam will rule yeah like narnia or whatever yeah, and of course, Aslan is just Lion Jesus, too. But it, it is interesting, the parallel here between the Queen and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I think that that parallel is stronger in this book because, one, Lords and Ladies is more of a Shakespeare. Um, I mean, it's Midsummer's Night Dream. This is YA, right? So the person who, the the children or the teenagers who read this book, or the adults in our case who read this book, are more likely to think about something like C.S. Lewis. They're more probably familiar with C.S. Lewis than they are with Shakespeare um, at, you know, that point. And so it makes sense that this reference would be made, especially since she is stealing children. Although the idea of el- like an elf or a fairy stealing, the fairy stealing away children is a very old one, obviously. But like as well, is it the drones reality that they see that's like got blood like it's all essentially blood red or is that another one no that's the drums yeah roland describes it he says it's like a a big rocky place with the blood red sun and i so this is something i noticed about the queen and tiffany on this read through so we've talked about first sight and we've talked about second and third thinking right thinking about your thoughts that you're thinking what they're describing when they say second and third sight is really self-awareness this idea of like, yeah. I am aware of how I am feeling and how I am acting and I am controlling it. I'm not letting it control me. So like, you know, when she gets, she can either be afraid or angry and she chooses anger for an instance, you know, because it has an edge to it, you know, that kind of thing. Or, you know, oh, of course I love him. Well, no, you don't, but he's your brother. So it doesn't matter anyway. Right. So like there's, there's these, this idea that she's developing self-awareness. Which is, in this book, associated with witchcraft, but also that's a trait that you start developing when you are an adolescent. When you're a child, you don't have a lot of self-awareness. It's just, this is how I feel, so I'm going to act on it. 
But when you're going through adolescence, that's when you start realizing, oh, there are other people besides me. And I can also I am also a person and I have thoughts and I can think about those thoughts. And that's also when you start developing empathy for other people as well. So that kind of fits into our coming of age Bildungsroman of the We Free Men. But what I didn't realize until this read through was that the way Tiffany describes the queen is very much the opposite of that. So when she says that she realizes that the queen is not clever because she never learned anything, she never had to, right? Because all all she knows how to do is these dreams and that's what she trusts in is her ability to manipulate dreams. And so she's really just, she says she's a child that's got old. And so there's this idea that the queen, even though she's technically an adult, and Tiffany is not, the queen is stuck in an earlier stage of development than Tiffany is. Tiffany has actually sort of surpassed her when it comes to developing this ability to be self-aware, to put other people ahead of herself, right? To take that responsibility, to take that duty of providing a reckoning. But like, it's like what Tiffany says to Granny Weatherwax, at the end, like you can't really give lessons in witchcraft not properly. It's more about how you are you. And I loved how Granny Weatherwax said witchcraft is kind of like a school, but the opposite. Like you you pass a test and then you spend years trying to figure out how you passed it. But yeah, like what did you think about that aspect of the queen? The idea that she's a, a child that just never a, tra- a child that's got old being stuck in this place where, I mean, Tiffany even says want a sweetie. <laughs> and like, so like the yeah. idea that like she's stuck and that's why she doesn't understand what the Knack Fiegel understand that it's wrong to steal. Like the Knack Fiegel will steal. They don't have any like real moral compunctions, but they understand the difference between right and wrong. Like it's okay to steal a gold goblet from somebody who's rich, but it's not okay to, steal the cup an old man kept his false teeth in or you know somebody who uh, the old lady's only pig or the food or food from people who don't have enough to eat she doesn't understand that because she never developed that empathy because she never went through that developmental stage it comes back to the idea of class consciousness and being class conscious and also joke that broke sam uh the idea of elon musk stealing berries in a supermarket yes Like, that's not class conscious. But it also just reminded me of a bit that I was actually reading in The Earth Transformed. Like, it's a historical source when there was, like, food shortages and things. Like, and when they're trying to do this whole, like, we're putting a nation together. The fact that the late 1780s had seen a surge in migration to frontier communities in New York, Vermont, and Pennsylvania put further pressure on grain supplies made worse by a bitterly cold winter and warnings of poor harvests. As one newspaper in Vermont put it at the start of June 1789... The great want of that necessary article bread will be more severely felt the next season that it is present. By this time, acts of resistance and defiance had become commonplace in France. These ranged from petty breakdowns such as poaching to more violent protests such as the Réveillon riots in April 1789, which served as a sign of things to come. Leaflets were circulated such as what no one has said yet, which declared that the authorities were failing in their primary duty of ensuring that there was bread enough for all. Another four cries of a patriot of the nation put it more bluntly. Citizens needed to be armed immediately and aristocrats would be ba- should be banished. What was the point of, quote, preaching peace and liberty to men dying of hunger? What use would a wise constitution be to a people of skeletons? I know we're talking about the queen being childish, but also like 
she has no concept of what it actually means to rule like she's the queen but it's through terror like and that's an interesting distinction to both the Kelda and how Granny Weatherwax and Tiffany rule their respective areas. But then also like on the child front, it really like that kind of capriciousness that really is childish. You know, that whole idea of the child who, who tortures small animals because they're smaller than him or pulls wings off of flies that, um, What's that quote from King Lear that Gloucester says, as fl- as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods, they kill us for their sport? Yes. Something like that. Yeah. Like the, the Caligulan sort of archetype. I wish, uh, so Sam has done a lot more research on this because she does like education stuff, but it is like actually like a stage. Have you studied any or read any Lacan? Briefly, we did Lacan and Freud as part of a theories of literature module. See, this is what really got me about first year of college. They had this module called theories of literature, which in hindsight is the most important module we would have we would ever take in our undergrad. It taught us all the different schools of thought which we, with which you would analyze a text. However, they presented it in each module where they just gave you a bunch of critical reading to do and nothing to like actually apply it to. So we were reading about Freud and the mirror stage one week, and then we would go on and do Marx the next week, but with no like practical examples of application of how you would actually do this. So like I did that, but like I have no real concept of like how it applies to real life. So one of the things that Lacan talks about that's become kind of a big like understanding of how development works is that uh, like a baby, for an example, doesn't it doesn't understand the difference between their self and other people like for for a small baby. It's like the like the mom and the baby are the same person, right? Like they don't they don't understand like where they end and where other people begin. But at some point there is a moment that where they transition into what Lacan calls the mirror stage, which is when they realize almost like looking into a mirror that like, Oh, like that's me and I am different from other people. Yeah. And that's a lot of what separates us from animals, right? Like, like an animal won't self-recognize in a mirror. So like a mirror stage establishes the ego as fundamentally dependent upon external objects or an other. So like, the, uh, I only exist because there are other people that exist, like, because, like, if they didn't exist, then I would not exist, basically. It's kind of like narcissism, but like the child form of it, right? Because children are kind of narcissistic sometimes, right? Where they're, you know, I'm the one who matters because I'm the one who, um, you know, I, I'm the only person who's experiencing this life. Have I ever talked about how I experienced that so bad? Where it's like, I physically, like, it's physically impossible for me to visualize what other people are experiencing and not in a like I lack empathy way. It's like, like when I'm out of the house, I find it physically impossible to visualize people at the house doing things when I'm not there. Like I just like, I can't visualize this. I feel like that's something wrong with my developmental process. Well, like the the thing is you have empathy though. And so like the idea is, is that yes. when you move into adolescence, you start developing actual empathy. Like, Oh, not only are there other people, but like they matter. 
as much as I do, right? And so, you know, it is that idea that maybe like the queen has gotten stuck in that mirror stage. There's her and then there's other people, but those other people don't matter, right? They're just there to be there for her. I do think that it's really hard and people do get stuck in this stage. Like, I'm not saying this happens for everybody. And I think your example about wealthier people is a good parallel for this because I think it is hard sometimes for people who are wealthy, especially people who are like billionaires, for an example, who do not need to exist. It's hard for them to move past the mere stage because they don't have to. And the queen doesn't have to. They've never been forced to deal with someone telling them no or someone having a different perspective from them. This also reminds me of the purple man from Marvel Comics. Do you know who that is? Have you seen Jessica Jones? Yes, but see, you said the purple man, and I thought instantly of that guy from fucking Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah, so the purple man in, in Marvel, his his power is that people will do what he says, and he got this power when he was a younger child, like 12 or 13, and that's why he acts like a child, is he never, like, if you don't, if everyone around you is incapable of saying no to you or establishing themselves as having a different perspective than you, then you're never going to learn empathy for them. They're just extensions of yourself. But also then we have this really interesting parallel with Wentworth, who is like a literal child, like a not very verbal one and has only one desire. Well, two essentially, which is want a sweetie and want to go toilet. (laughs) But like we actually see him develop then especially at the end of the book when tiffany is like teaching him how to do chores and that's something the queen could never do wentworth goes into fairyland and comes out and experiences a mirror stage i can't wait to market this episode being like we're to- <laughs> we're psychoanalyzing <laughs> we're psychoanalyzing fairies Fair- Dar- terry pratchett yeah well and we even get that a little bit when you know he starts to do his normal thread about want to go toilet and then rob anybody basically tells him no like he's like no like you need to stop you need to be good for your sister and he like laughs and ca- starts calling rob the wee wee man which is funny but yeah. like it is this recognition of oh, this is someone who's different and their opinion matters. So you can kind of start seeing that a little bit there at the end as well. The bumblebee women are terrifying too. Yes. That painting, I love the author's note that that painting that she enters in the book, like she sees it in the the book of fairy tales and she's like, this looks like the only one that might be real, like that the artist actually drew it or painted it. But then she enters it in... The Fairyland, it's real. It's a real painting. Um, it's called The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke by Richard Dad, and it's in the Tate Gallery in London. The only thing that Pratchett added to it was that the knack fecal making a rude gesture, although I like the note. I suppose it's always possible that one was removed for making an obscene gesture. It's the sort of thing that they would do. Also, uh, The Fairy Feller's Masterstroke is also the title of a song by Queen. Yeah, I forgot about that. You're right. I think it's also thematically important to the bit where um, Pratchett says, I'm going to get the direct quote. What people know about Richard Dad is that he went mad, killed his father, was locked up in a lunatic asylum for the rest of his life and painted a weird picture. Crudely, that's all true, but it's a dreadful summary of the life of a skilled and talented artist who developed a serious mental illness. Like when you put that beside Mrs. Snapperly and also Miss Robinson, you know, the way that like, we're so inclined to view 
lower class struggles through the lenses of problems that have been put on them by society that society has failed to and you know the way that, like people needlessly criminalize people of color in america for being addicted to drugs even though like most of the like addiction among black people in america was was you know put in there by the cia right and there's very little support for people going through addiction if it's a black person who's addicted to drugs in the u.s it's like a sign of a crime or like weak moral character but if it's a white person then it's an epidemic right it's a sickness yeah and so there is also that distinction as well and also like if a black person is found in possession of drugs they go to jail and if a white person is found in possession of drugs they go to rehab exactly so there is also that Broadly As speaking, well. we're not, we're not, <laughs> we here at Nanny Ogg's book club are not putting ourselves as being like the ultimate race relation understanders. Not at all. But yeah, there is kind of that, that contrast there. Let's talk about the Nackmack Fiegel because we haven't talked about them very much and they are in fact the titular We Free Men. Oh, characters. I do think it's interesting that the original title for this was supposed to be For Fear of Little Men, which is Yes, the, I love that poem. Yeah, the poem. And also, Rob, anybody says it too, right? Like, people used to, you know, stay in for fear of little men. What I think is interesting is this idea that the Nackmack Fiegel used to work for the the Queen, the Quinn, <laughs> in the Scotch Gaelic that they speak. But they disagreed with her and were kicked out of Fairyland or left Fairyland, depending on who tells the story. What do we think about the Nackmack Fiegel? I feel like they're a little different than the ones we met in... Carpe Juggalum. They're a different clan, obviously, um, but they're much more developed. Also, can I just say, like, do you know the whole the whole of the fairies by William Allingham? The that poem, the up the area mountain. It gets really dark. Yeah. They stole little Bridget for seven years long. When she came down again, her friends were all gone. Very much like how time in Fairyland passes. They took her lightly back between the night and morrow. They thought that she was fast asleep, but she was dead with sorrow. They have kept her ever since deep within the lake on a bed of flag leaves watching till she wakes. Just sort of like really terrifying. Thanks, Ireland. <laughs> but I really like them. They're like a, a lot of the reason why I, I felt this book was like infectiously fun. Every single scene in them, they're having a blast. Like, have you seen Korra? The Legend yeah, of Korra? Yeah, I have. See, I'm watching it for the first time and I... I love Varric so much, like in, especially in season two, because every single scene he's in, he's having the time of his life. They're just they're just going around and like the way they talk about how they're like always in a fighting mood, yeah. you know, and they can get into anywhere they want. Uh, but like, yeah, they just they're like their solution to most things is start a fight or, or rob somebody. Yeah. I like that as well that they headbutt people. And they uh, and if they, they headbutt, I feel like and if there's nobody to fight, they'll fight each other. <laughs> I know this is sort of I, I know it's sort of like slightly playing off of the stereotype that Irish and Scottish people are like drunk and rowdy the entire time, but like like it's true. And I I don't really have issues with this. I also just want to say like the headbutt is such an underrated fighting move. Oh, it is. It's so surprising and disorienting, and it hurts. Yeah, but it's also really funny then in media when they when they get it wrong, where you like do a headbutt wrong and you end up also hurt. Yes. <laughs> it, that's it's so fun. 
and their dialogue as well. Like every time one of them popped up and they were like, ah, Crivens. Criven I've been saying Crivens to myself, much like Wentworth. I just like I'm at work and something will drop and I'll go, Crivens. <laughs> Crivens is such a great one. Um, I was gonna ask you what you thought about the dialect in this one, because it is it's very clearly based on like a Scotch Gaelic type of dialect. And I do think it's interesting also that Rob Anybody and the Chalk Knack MacFiegel have a different dialect than William, who originally is from somewhere else. See, like that's like that's not that's not like specifically an Irish thing because I know like there's 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 like did you know there's different forms of Irish? First of all, I mean it doesn't surprise me. I don't think I knew that, but I mean it would be very silly to imagine that one country had like the same dialect. No, but like like there's loads of fundamental differences even within a nation as small as Ireland because like Gaelga is like slightly different to Scots Gaelic and also like Manx, right? But then when you actually get into Ireland, there's like Munster Irish, Leinster Irish, and then also what they speak up the north in like Donegal, which is like a whole other beast. But this really felt like the difference between Scottish accents to me, because like this, this feels really like simple to say being like, Oh, it's like accents. Because, like, yeah, it is. But, like, there's something really fascinating about the different types of Scottish accent and how, like, like you, everyone has an idea of a Scottish accent, right? Like, if I asked you to do a Scottish accent, you would do pretty much the exact same thing as any other person who wasn't from Scotland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a very, like, stereotypical, broad Scottish accent that usually people do, like you said, when they're not Scottish. Yeah, but, like, then... Because, like, if you said do an English accent, there's a bunch of different ones that people could do. Right. You know? Not just, like, the posh one. But, like, when you're when you're over in Dundee, it feels more like William's accent. And, like, Edinburgh feels more like the Chalknack McFeagle. But then, like, when you're, you're up in the Highlands, it's different. When you're in Glasgow, it's different. I, I'm pretty sure as well, like, you know how people, um, you know, they, they say Dunny and Canny um, for don't and can't? In, I think it's Glasgow. You, you don't say Dunny. Like, that's actually not part of their lexicon. Interesting. So it's like a different vocabulary, too. Yeah, kind of. And that's that's what I, I felt really coming through in this, because, like, then as well, they talk about the different clans and how Fionn has gone off to be Kelda of a different clan, and then they have someone coming from a different clan then to be Kelda of the Chocknack MacFeagles. I don't know. It's, it's really interesting. And there's also another dialect that's not... I, I think part of it is used by the Nakmak Fiegel, but um, you hear it more in Granny Aching because she she kind of speaks like this older language a little bit. Like she calls Tiffany my jigget, right? Which is is twenty. Um, sh- there's the Yantan Tethera, which is the ancient counting language, um, which is like a real ancient counting language of shepherds in Northern England. So we even have like some more rural. English dialects in here as well for the chalk. And this is something I think I mentioned in other witch and wizard books, like especially when they talk about the lore, you know, like how that's a fun pun, but it's also like phonically sounds like how people speak in like the West country. And I feel like the witches and also the wizards speak in a very like 
West Country Midlands English dialect. And then they also have like the old words, which now have sort of been phased out. Like that's still incorporated in their geology and their then their language. You know, they still they still call the forests the wald and things like that. Just no, just have you ever seen those lists that are like, here's words that people used to say that we should really bring back. You know, yeah. and it has things like ossified to mean drunk. Most of those are just said regularly in Ireland, which I just think is hilarious. <laughs> that is really funny. Yeah, and like just kind of getting off the dialects for a second, there are a lot of like landmarks in this book too that are kind of similar to English and Scottish and Irish landmarks, like um, Arkin Hill that she climbs to the top of near the beginning of the book is very similar to like Dragon Hill or uh, Silbury Hill. Or Arthur's seat near Edinburgh. And, you know, I like the different stories. Like, some people say that someone fought a dragon here. Some people say that it's a burial site. You know, there's a lot of, like, those. And then the the stones. Um, what are they called? Trilithons. Trilithons, yeah. So, yeah, there's this idea that, you know, that these stones have been arranged by ancient people, but we've completely forgot what the meanings of them are. Although I do think it is interesting that she has to go through the trilithons in order to get into fairyland, um, just kind of like how in Lanker they have to go through the dancers to get through into Lanker and then vice versa. It's really in keeping with this, like... Okay, so now that I'm saying this, I realize it is sort of, like, a bit problematic, just in a, uh, like the way of conceptualizing a culture, you know, and this is, I keep, uh, like I'm going to keep relating this to Ireland because I think fundamentally it's not different on this level. And also it's what I've experienced. Like when, when Americans come through and they have this like notionalized idea of how we are connected to our past, mm -hmm. like that, that's fundamentally problematic when you, when you build your conception of a culture on that, right. but like the land, the, the way we engage with the land and our history, and it's also true in Scotland too, it's really tied to that and like the physical parts of the land and these old ruins that are, you know, like, like you go up and you, you're in Salisbury in England and you go and see Stonehenge, which is just standing there. You go to, you know, you go to the Cairns, you go to Newgrange. They're like real tangible parts of history that are still standing that are like, especially in the case of, Newgrange, it's older than the pyramids in Egypt. It's really interesting in Ireland as well, because we don't really have a history, per se, when you go back far enough. When you look at history, it becomes intermingled with folklore and mythology. You know, like, we, we essentially don't have a history that's unmoored from the beliefs of the people at the time, which I think is really interesting. Okay, like we've talked about this a little bit, but like there are these like fantasy worlds where and we've talked about really liking this where they'll just be something built by an ancient culture and nobody can remember who they were or why it's there. Like the Tower of Art in the Unseen University. We've talked about that, how like they just kind of built the yeah. university around it. It's interesting that this it, it has that feeling because it's like, you know, you have all these shepherds that are sort of living in the ruins of a much older civilization and they don't understand what the, all the ruins mean or who, you know, put them there or anything like that. But there's more of a parallel between the ruins on the chalk and the real world, the round world, right, than there are in other fantasy books. So it kind of makes those connections more, more obvious. 
Yeah. When I was in America, I can't remember where exactly in Colorado I was, but there was like this big mound that was just there and it had like something on top of it or whatever. But I remember asking my friend being like, what, what is that over there? And she was like, no one really knows. No one knows why this giant mound was made there. Like it's not, not a hill that's been uh, like had the grass taken off it. It's just like a mound that's there. If someone can like figure out where that is in Colorado from that vague description and knows why it is the way it is, I'd like to know, but also wouldn't at the same time. It's kind of like, I do want to know, but I don't at the same time. Yeah. Like when you finally know what the lyrics to a Nirvana song are, <laughs> like when you actually know the words and you're like, oh, damn it. I don't actually want to know. What did we think about individual knack fecal, like Rob Anybody, Daft Wooly, not as big as medium-sized jock, but bigger than Weed Jock Jock, Hamish, William? I like that they all have distinct personalities. And again, that feels like a trite thing to say. But when you introduce a mob as a character, the temptation is there. It's very, like, very simple to just homogenize them mm-hmm. or have only one speaker, you know, like to rob anybody and that's it. Just like associated people and be like, ah, pick C said, which is like what some of them do. Cause I feel like if Terry Pratchett gave them all names in this, that would be too much. But I like that they're like really distinct. I like that Hamish has his Kestrel, you know, that he, he flies around and learns to parachute off of. And I like that. Um, William is the Ghana gull uh, and has the mouse pipes. The mouse pipes, the the part where he plays the the king underwater when they're fighting off the Grimhounds, mm. I thought that was great. Yeah, that that was really good. Who is it that uh, does the poetry? Not as big as medium sized Jock, but bigger than we Jock Jock. The, the battle poetry. That's so cool. I loved that. I thought that was so funny. I like that. Like everybody's fine except for a couple people who didn't get their hands over their ears in time. They'll be okay with counseling. <laughs> I also like that it implies that counseling is a real thing in the disc world. <laughs> well, at least amongst the Knack Fiegel. I think you're right, though. I like that they all have distinct personalities and different like functions within the clan. But I also like that the mob itself is kind of its own person. Like It's kind of like they shift between the two. Like Where you're like, okay, here are these this group of characters that are really funny and charming and distinct from each other. But then there are these moments, specifically usually when they're being attacked or when they make an entrance or something, where it's like they all become like one massive blob. Which I, I just find that incredibly funny. The scene where that rob anybody is trying to get them all like worked up and they all do their individual war cries which are really funny and then they're like let's go and they like run out and then tiffany's like where are they going and william says they'll be back once they realize they don't know where they're going yeah they do work as a mob and yeah like together they're maybe not the brightest but like but they hang in there they find their way in and out of things right yeah including nuts for some reason yeah, I mean, and it's funny that they aren't particularly bright in the sense of like they they don't always that they need they they don't always do all the thinking for themselves and yet they understand how fairyland works. Right? They're able to to move through it fairly easily. I was going to say though, since we've been talking about other YA books that this sort of makes reference to, there are a lot of echoes of Peter Pan in this book too. Because there is also this sense that, like, she has to become the Kelda because there is always a Kelda. 
And I think it's rob anybody who says like that they're sad because the Kelda, it means that the Kelda is dying and there won't be anyone left to take care of us. And Tiffany, she says, these are a bunch of tattooed men who like hit people with their heads and they all have swords, but they need somebody to take care of them. And so it's very much that like Wendy taking care of the lost boys type of vibe. Yeah, definitely. Like as well, you have the, uh, you know, fairly obvious comparison between Fairyland and Neverland where children don't grow up. But then you have an important distinction, I think, between Peter Pan, who is a boy who never grew up and the queen who effectively refuses to grow up. But Wendy is sort of like, uh, I feel like this is also in my head because on Maisie Peter's new album, there's a song called Wendy. And it's like essentially lamenting the fact that, oh, yeah, there's always a Peter Pan. There's always a Neverland. But no one really talks about Wendy, who has to like look after and essentially raise this this group of people who refuse to grow up. Yeah, but they want a mother, right? Like, that's the big thing with Wendy, is that they need a mother to look after them and read them stories. And it's a, it's a thankless job. Yeah, and the Kelda is very much maternal. It's a yeah. role that literally is about them going to another, cl- you know, a woman going off to another clan, marrying someone in the clan and having a lot of children. But it's not just maternal, it's she does the thinking, right, for the clan. In a lot of ways, the Kelda seems like the Nakmak Fiegel version of a witch. Because even, like, they imply, too, that she's the one who's been keeping the queen off since Granny Aching died. But as well, there's that disconnect from family, too, because, like they say to Fionn, you can't be Kelda of your own clan they have this weird remove from it where you're forcing these women away from like their actual family. And you can bring some of them, you can bring some of them with you, but you're not going to be with like, you're not going to be in your own home. Right. It is. It's very interesting. This idea that like they are maternal, but they're also queenly as well, but they also serve like that witch role. It's a Scandinavian word, apparently, meaning spring or fountain, which is apt for babies as these water sources symbolize youth, energy, growth, and hope. Interesting. I mean, the Kelda is the person from whom, like, the clan springs, for the most part. And so that makes sense. What did you think of the old Kelda, who was friends with Granny Aching? She was really cool. Did we ever get her name? I do like that her character was essentially like, all of her action was in the past. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know why. Like all of the stuff she's done, it's all in the past. She shows up there, and it's essentially just to confer the title of Kelda to Tiffany in interim. You know, while they get another Kelda, and then she just dies. I, <laughs> it's kind of funny as well. Yeah, it's kind of like a call to action, though. Too like here's this quest, and here's some more information about the quest. The, the the archetype of like wise older mentor really is filled by this Kelda. She can't really do magic though, right? Not even in the sense of not even in the sense of headology, right? I, I just kind of assumed that she's like Granny Weatherwax and Granny Aching. That maybe she can do magic, maybe she can't, but she's clearly very good at ruling, which is its own yeah. type of headology, I think. But yeah, what did you think about Tiffany being their temporary Kelda. I was in, or I was like initially sort of like, because the first thing they were like, you're talking about her having babies and she's 
And I was like, she's nine? I think that's just because the Nakback Fiegel don't understand human beings and how they work. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no, no. I, I, like, I know that, but just, like, within the narrative, I was like, oh. But I did like that she was, uh, like, she was smart enough to figure it out, a way to, like, still be within the rules. And it also, like, one of my favorite stories, the one about the bird flying to the mountain, the one that's in that Doctor Who episode, Heaven Sent. I did like that. Like, she really seems to fall into the role quite quickly, which I I think probably does support your idea of the Kelda essentially being a witch. Because the old Kelda, like, looks at Tiffany and knows, oh, you'll make a good Kelda, just not, like, a long-term one, because we need an actual Fiegel. Right, and, like, I, I, I do think it's funny, too, because, yeah, the, the joke about her having babies is a little weird, but I think it's because... The Nagmak Fiegel, one, don't know how humans work. You know, like, I don't think they understand how age and size correlate with humans. But two, they're all terrified of her. <laughs> like, I don't, I think that, like, for them, she's not a sexual being at all. Like, she's just, like, they none of them want to marry her, right? Like, Rob is, like, got this, like, they call it a rictus of terror on his face. And so, like, to yeah. me, I think that, like, undercuts, like, the whole thing about, like, oh, well, maybe she's she's a little young to have babies or whatever. But, yeah, I love when Rob catches on to what she's doing. And he's like, and Daft Willie volunteers to go help out the bird. And he's like, no, no one's helping out the bird. <laughs> like, <laughs> it would take an awful long time. Yeah, and we have to plan out the guest list. And it would probably take ages to get the flowers. <laughs> I also wanted to ask you what you thought about hamish he he's figured out how to fly by uh tape essentially taming a vulture i thought that was really cool like especially when they um explain how he does it going up and like convincing the birds that he's one of them so they're they're no longer like they're happy to have a knack mcfeagle on them or as they say they're happy not to have an angry knack mcfeagle on them I like not as big as medium-sized jock, but bigger than we jock jock when he says, all it takes is a wee bit of kindness and a big dollop of cruelty. <laughs> yeah. Very much the like, speak softly and carry a large stick <laughs> approach. Yeah, I like how Tiffany gives him the idea for the parachute so he doesn't keep drilling into the ground with his head <laughs> when he spins. Yeah, although although he does steal her underwear <laughs> Again, I don't think that they completely understand it. I love their swords that glow, which is in the presence of lawyers, which is a very Lord of the Rings sting reference. See, I thought that was a throwaway joke, but then I, I really like that they like they actually then had to face lawyers at the end. The dream lawyers and the toad actually is a lawyer. Have we met the toad before? You know, I was wondering about that because I he says that he was changed into a toad by a fairy godmother. Or he was a toad that a fairy godmother made think that he was human at once. And I kind of wonder if maybe he's a, a victim of Lilith. Like yeah. Lilith Weatherwax. Because I was racking my brains being like, is this a character we actually met in? Which is a broad, like, I was like, was there a scene where that happened? And then I was like, no, 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 there wasn't. But yeah, maybe it was just a thing. But as well, that description of maybe he's a lawyer that got turned into a frog or a frog, a fairy godmother convinced 
was once a human feels very much like the the borrowing that Esk does. Yeah. On like how Grebo has sense memories now of being a human. Yeah, there is kind of that reflection there where he's not sure you know what what exactly happened. Um and he's been a toad for so long that the shape has given him has caused him to forget things about being human, which is why he doesn't remember that he used to be a lawyer until the very end. A Deus ex whatever I don't know. I don't know Latin so I can't conjugate. Uh, Deus ex machina. I was trying to like conjugate something to do with, something to do with law cuz like I know lex is law and then you've got like judice or ju- judice I suppose cuz it's a hard c but I, I I don't know how to conjugate latin so if someone does yeah, please let us know. Can you make god from out, god from out of the lawyers? <laughs> I also love the kind of to go with that the respect that the Nakmak Fiegel have for words. You get that with the poetry but you also get the idea that written words are magic. And she uses that when she's using the diseases of the sheep book and she's just like reading from it. And it's just like random diseases, which, by the way, the joke about how Granny Aching kept crossing out remedies and basically saying, nope, turpentine is like really, really funny to me. A big dose of turpentine until either man or sheep has stopped. Either there's no turpentine or no sheep. (laughs) Well, I just I like the. Like their fear of lawyers, like when when the lawyers start reading out their names and they're like, oh, they've got our names. It's an interesting spin on never giving your name to a fairy or a spirit so they can use it against you. Like like the concept of a true name. Right. Which is why a lot of fairies in like fairy tales, like real fairy tales, real old ones have descriptors and not names. Because you don't know what their name yeah, is. Yeah, it's the whole Rumpelstiltskin thing. I don't know, that just puts me in mind of... Have you read any of the new, the newer, like, Sandman universe stuff? I've read a little bit, but not as much as I would have liked. All right, there's just this one bit in, like, the Dreaming Waking Hours where they, like... In the first Dreaming series... So they did. So there was, like, the Dreaming series in the 90s, that's no longer canon. Then they did the Dreaming in 2018... And in that, like, Morpheus tells Nula what Queen Mab's true name is, and Mab, like, she uses this against Mab. But then they're, like, really come back to this idea of, which is something that Roderick Burgess said in the first episode, I give you a name, and that name is Loss, which I just think is really cool. I promise I won't make everything about the Sandman. Uh, I just have brain worms about it. You know, I love it. So, like, hearing this is great. Tune in for series eight somewhere down the road where we just do every issue of Sandman. That's our next podcast, Sandman. There's so many references in this. Like I've already talked about Lord of the Rings, for an example, and the line, the witch in the wardrobe and Peter Pan. Um, there's also a Moby Dick reference when Granny Aching is talking about the the boat for chasing the great white whale fish on the salt sea. He's always chasing it all around the world. It's called Mopey. This is a comic called The Unwritten. Um, it was de- it was written by Mike Carey and art by Peter Gross. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's about this kid who was like essentially made from a story who's kind of this like boy wizard archetype, kind of like Ponder Stibbons, you know, how he and the guy from Earthsea how they started off that like boy wizard goes to school thing. 
and he has this like best-selling book series written about them now this came out after harry potter so it's like oh yeah it's kind of like harry potter but then he learns like about the power of stories and like these archetypes and how they like push against the world and narratives form around them and there's this really interesting arc like about like about this creature which is like the font of all stories called leviathan and it's this big whale and it talks about how it's like the inspiration for leviathan by thomas hobbes and then also like the whale in moby dick too i think you'd really enjoy it about like how it deconstructs the way we tell stories but just like it, it put it put me in mind of that when i was reading it just because of the way it's like it's not really uh like it's not really a fish and it's also not really the whale from granny aching's story and it's also like not real as well it's this like idea of a thing that got passed down in what tiffany's idea of the sea is from stories because she's been on the chalk her whole life i think there's only once where she's like talks about going to a city that's like right off the chalk or something or a town really it's interesting that she has this like you know, it's like a child who doesn't understand the scale of things, like how far away things are from each other. So like she, when she's talking about the sea, like you said, all she knows about the sea is from this tobacco wrapper. And she sees another picture of it at some point where there's like a lot of men in a boat, like trying to like steer their way to shore. But she says, I can't see the lighthouse. You know what I mean? Because like in her mind, the lighthouse is like part of her conception of the sea and so it's like she has this very like small idea of what the sea actually is but do you think also like on a thematic level she can't conceptualize like obviously as a child they have a limited conceptualization of things but like as someone who has a very set view of the world and how granny aching was always there looking after people and making sure things were going right she can't visualize a place without a beacon of safety. I think that that's a really interesting point. And I think it lines up with what happens at the end when they're in the, the inside the wrapper, right? Um, this other world and granny aching shows up right with the jolly sailor because she is that safety and she's dressed in the shepherdess dress, but that's, that is what she represents to Tiffany. So absolutely. I think you're, you're 100% right. I, I really, um, I thought that was kind of heartbreaking. The, like the scene where she talks about how she got it and she gave it to Granny Aiken because she thought, oh, she'd like this because she's a, a shepherdess. And then later on being like, that was so stupid. It's nothing like what an actual shepherdess is. I just like, that was quietly sort of heartbreaking. Because like as a child, she was like, oh, this is a pretty thing that I'm really proud of winning. And I gave it to my grandmother, Right. When she gets older, she realizes that it could be taken a different way. This idea that like, oh, I'm telling you that you're not right, that you're not a real shepherdess, right? It, it kind of comes from this idea because Granny Aching, she dresses very masculine. She does a job that we generally associate with with men. And so like there is this idea that maybe by telling her like, oh, well, you should look like this. There's kind of, there's, there's something gendered going on there too. And it's not something Tiffany meant to do. She's really, you know, ashamed of the idea that, that she could have taken it that way, but it is interesting. Like, I mean, if I said you like name a female shepherdess, what would spring to mind? It's little Bo Peep. The only, 
female shepherdess archetype we have is Little Bo Peep. Yeah. But I do like that when Granny Aching appears, she's still wearing her boots. Those are part of who she is. You can take Granny Aching from the chalk, but you can't take the chalk from Granny Aching. So also by the end, we need to talk about, of course, that, like you said, that little cameo with Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og. How were you expecting them to show up here at the end? Were you surprised that they came back with Miss Tick? Actually, yes. Like, I know that they're part of the story, but I didn't think that they would show up both in the sense that I thought Miss Tick would show up on her own and then be like, oh, you sorted this out yourself, huh? Or I thought it would be a different witches because I, I feel like in my brain, I didn't <laughs> I didn't think of how close the ram tops were to the chalk. So I was just like, oh, it's a different witch. How could Perspicacia Tick know <laughs> gr- Granny and Nanny? They were so good. I like the fact that like her and Nanny Og show up. They do some weird hand wavy CSI. <laughs> like there's more CSI uh, happens at the end of the book too. But like she just she shuts down Miss Tick every time she tries to talk. And Tiffany's like, huh, I better learn how to do that. But what I thought was so good, it was my favorite moment, was when Granny asks about what happened mm-hmm. and then she uh, tiffany uh, i found the um i found the paragraph and that was i don't ask you your business said tiffany before she even realized she was saying it miss tick gasped mrs Ogg's eyes twinkled and she looked from tiffany to mistress weatherwax like someone watching a tennis match tiffany mistress weatherwax is the most famous witch in all miss tick began severely but the witch waved a hand at her again i really must learn how to do that tiffany thought Then Mistress Weatherwax took off her pointed hat and bowed to Tiffany. Well said, she said, straightening up and staring directly at Tiffany. I didn't have no right to ask you. This is your country. We're here by your leave. I show you respect as you in turn will respect me. Like, like she, she respects that even though Tiffany gave her back talk, which like she never did with Magrat. If Magrat like even legitimately criticized her, she would go off in a hump and have a fight with her. Like when they're in Witches Abroad. nanny would have to try and like patch things up between them but i did like she was like i understand where you're coming from here don't ever do it again she understands that tiffany is not magrat like tiffany is not going to take shit from her at all even though she's nine and so like yeah i really like the part where she says to but if one day you care to tell me more i should be grateful to hear about it and them creatures that look like they're made of dough i should like to know more about them too never run across them before and your grandmother sounds like the kind of person i would have liked to meet i like that like the idea that she kind of like she says yeah never do that again but she kind of softens too you know she actually asks her you know i actually would really like to know about this you know, and then she acknowledges her grandmother as well, which is, I think, important. I think it's important for Tiffany that her grandmother be acknowledged as a witch, because that's why she gets so angry at Miss Tick at the beginning for kind of like questioning it. Because she's like, well, she had familiars. She had thunder and lightning, which, by the way, thunder and lightning are great. <laughs> they might be my second favorite familiars after Grebo. Yeah, because they're like... Like, they show up and they just know instinctively what to do. Like, the scene where they heard the clouds. Yeah, I love that. That's so fucking cool. And the way that they just disappear after she dies, right? They just watch the the thing burn and then they, they walk off kind of together. 
And I also really like this bit at the end where both Granny Weatherwax and Annie Auger kind of asking her about herself, like, well, what can you do? And she's like, well, I do cheese. And Granny's like, but uh, can you do like midwifery or midwifery? Can you do medicine? And she's like, well, you know, kind of, you know, I've been on a farm. And they're like, okay, well, when you're older, you need to come. You need to come up to Lanker and, you know, we'll we'll see what we can teach you. That not only like sets up what happens in Hatful of Sky, but it also like this idea that they're just kind of like they, you know, they say, you know, you can't really teach witchcraft, right? It's not like the school is all around you or whatever, but they, she still does have a lot to learn in terms of the practical skills. Because, I mean, as we've seen in previous witch books, that's a lot of what Granny and Nanny do, right? They do a lot of medicine. They do a lot of midwifery. They, you know, do a lot of managing of people. And so there is this sense that Tiffany has learned a lot from experiences and from her grandmother, but you know, she still has a lot of these practical skills to learn. I know you mentioned the quote before about the, um, like, learning witchery is, or witchcraft is, you know, it's like life, the the bit that Granny says later on. But, like, the physical school being like, you have to open up, sorry, excuse me, the eyes inside of you. You need to take stock of yourself and what you've learned already. Like, I don't, think that you could become a witch without like understanding that you've been a witch already which then also makes me think in the disc world like can there ever really be city witches like witches who grew up in the city and learned to do magic in the city without like having practical skills from being on a farm yeah that is a really good question because the witches in these books are very much associated with rural places. I mean, we've talked a little bit before about how if Susan lived in Linker that she might be a witch because she has a lot of things in common, right? With Granny and Nanny. Yeah. The only one I can actually think of who's in a city is Esk, but she didn't start there, right? She also grew up in a rural place. No, she stays in Unseen University because remember the end of that book is really weird because it's like, and then she stays there and then she and the other wizard like make their own branch of wizardry and then we never hear about them oh yeah 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 she just like essentially walks out into the blue uh screen fade yeah yeah because then as well we meet a witch in Ankh-Morpork again in equal rights you know when the when they go there and they meet her at the stall but again she's only someone who's traveled there to like you know sell things from her stall there's Maybe no that is the connection with the land and i wonder then like Maybe there just yeah. isn't the same kind of connection to be had with a big city like Ankh-Morpork. Like coming more and more into this idea, I like this idea more and more because like cities are planned things more so than towns. Because you like, you build a town in the countryside around what's there, you know, or at least in, in the medieval times, you would build it around the natural features that were there and it would be incorporated into the like design of the town, the layout of it. Whereas with a city you build on top of it you you know you like tear everything down and build it there and it's all angles and geometry which is what the wizard's magic is based on the closest thing i can think of that parallels that connection that tiffany has with the chalk in ankh-morpork would be vimes and his boots but vimes isn't a witch so it is a very different connection than what tiffany has I feel like spiritually, though, he could be a witch. He's got a lot of the same characteristics, but not the same. 
it, it, it's not the same context, right? Like we were saying. No. Is there anything else you want to say about this book before we transition to the, our ending? I do, actually. It's just like the last thing that uh, William says before he, he disappears. Is it after Roland shows up? Which as well, um, we have that other tie to like fantasy narratives where you have child Roland. Like he's named after a famously historical person and he's like weirdly capricious. Yeah. And there's a the big thing about in Child Roland not eating the fairy food or you'll stay there. Like yeah, there's like a lot of parallels with Child Roland. I can't find the bit where like William says oh that he's going with Fion to going with Fion to the place where she's becoming Kelda of but like the last thing he says to her is remember you're loved. There is this idea that like they are looking after her, right? They are keeping an eye on her, even though she's not their Kelda anymore. So I have an apology to make. <laughs> I, at the very beginning okay. of this, said that death is in every single Discworld book, but it turns out he's not in the We Free Men. There is no death sighting in this book. Yeah. Which is very odd. And honestly, a little concerning. <laughs> I guess it's because there's really at no point does somebody really... I mean, I guess the the knackback fecal, somebody dies or some of them die, but they don't actually think of it as death, right? Because they think that the Discworld is heaven to them and that they are already in the afterlife. So does death show up for them? I don't know. That would be interesting to see. Yeah. Because we've seen before that death kind of tailors the experience to what people expect it to be there, like how he appears how he appears to, to brother and to brother and Vorbis and there's the desert there, but then when he appears to Lillian, Granny Weatherwax, it's like the mirror maze. It's it's very odd that death is not in this book at all. I mean he's even in Maurice, which is the other YA book. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Like, you can't even make the argument that, oh, YA, we, we don't do death. Because as well, as well, like, we have the thing with Mrs. Snapperly at the start. So it's quite clearly a tone setter. You know, it's not going to be sanitized. I wonder if part of it is just, like, because it's from Tiffany's perspective so much that he didn't want to shift the perspective to someone else. Or, I don't know. It's interesting. But yeah, no death in this. This is the single one, I think. I could be wrong. Maybe there are more, but... But death is in other Tiffany Aiken Yes. But yeah, no, he is in other stuff. No death of rats, unfortunately. There's also no sort. And no mention of sort. We're all out of sorts. No sort. The first footnote in this book comes pretty early. It's on my page two. It's when Miss Tick is looking at the contraption that she's made to see like what's going on with the walls of the world being thin. And uh, she says, you can't grow a good witch on chalk. That stuff's barely harder than clay. You need a good hard rock to grow a witch on, believe me. Miss Tick shook her head, sending raindrops flying. But my elbows are generally very reliable. Footnote. People say things like listen to your heart, but witches learn to listen to other things too. It's amazing what your kidneys can tell you. That's fun. I like that. The idea of like, don't just listen to your heart, listen to other parts of your body. And that to me, like brings back that theme of like being present and knowing who you are and where you are. Like part of that's your body and listening to what your body is telling yeah. you. Did you have a favorite footnote, Nigel? I did actually. Uh, and it's the one about Tiffany 
Yeah, Tiffany had read lots of words in the dictionary that she'd never heard spoken, so she had to guess at how they were pronounced. I just, I really feel that in my body because, like Tiffany, I also read the entire dictionary as a kid because I had it, uh, I had a Kindle and uh, the dictionary was sort of just on there for free. So I just read through. I just read through the entire dictionary. I mean, that's that's incredible. But I also re- I, there's definitely a lot of words that I learned through reading that I did not know how they were pronounced. And it's always embarrassing when that happens, right? When you say when you say something, people are like, "What are you talking about?" And then you realize you're saying it wrong. Yeah, when you say something like "pune." And that was my other thing. This is actually also my favorite footnote, and part of it is also because she says "pune," "pune." Which is, of course, also a long-running joke that we've had in the Discworld. Death has said pune or a play on words. I think Carrot has said this, too, actually. Like, there's several characters who have made this joke. And so it's fun to see it here again. What was something that made you laugh out loud? I mean, it would be fairly easy to say the Knack McFeagal, but, like, I feel like that's nearly a cop-out because it's their book. But what made me laugh was when the Toad says, Oh, crope. And Tiffany goes, what's that? And he said, I guess it's like cursing if you're a toad. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the rat curses in Maurice. How uh, how they start using the rat curses instead of the other stuff. My thing that made me laugh is, I mean, there's lots of things. This book is very funny. But something we haven't actually talked about yet is when the toad realize, remembers that he's a lawyer and he starts using Latin to fend off yes. the other lawyers, the dream lawyers. One of the things he says is visne fascium capite replita, which is, would you like a face that is full of head? I thought that was very funny. <laughs> I do like uh, Terry Pratchett's like own Latin conjugations. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's even on his coat of arms, like the Latin roughly translates to don't fear the reaper. And then Vimes is always having to work it out. Like when somebody says something Latin, he's like working it out in his head because he knows Latin, but obviously like from his school days. So he doesn't remember it very well. So it takes him a minute. What's something that made you think? I was going to go with, uh, and I know it's been brought up before, just the the way that uh, Tiffany talks about the queen never having never learned anything and never having to. Just because I feel like it really describes a lot of bigots in today's age. Like it really like. They don't and refuse to learn. And it's sort of like brought a bit more closer to home because we've had protesters in work protesting and filming us because we're selling the Juno Dawson books. You know, this book is gay and what's the tea and being like, oh, we're forcing ideologies on kids and things like that. And it's like they're also right by the Game of Thrones, which is like fully accessible to kids if they come into the shop. They can pick that up and read them. Like there's no one to stop them in the store, but they have no problem with that. Like they have no conceptualization of anything outside of their own narrow little focus. They just they haven't actually learned anything. It is interesting to like compare that to people who just don't have any empathy for other people because that's really her problem is she steals and she never gives anything back, right? Is one of the things that they talk about. There's like no empathy. There's no understanding of people being other than herself and being valuable outside herself. Whereas Tiffany then like her whole thing is like at the end when she takes on the power of the land, like the most important important part of it is giving it back yeah not just taking but also giving 
One of the things that really made me think, I mean, there's a few things, um, the witch stuff, obviously, and the stuff you just talked about. But one thing that hasn't come up yet is the dreams. I thought the way that they talk about dreams in this book, it's not just an interesting plot point, but it is this idea where where all your dream, you know, may all your dreams come true. Well, that person should try living in a dream for five minutes. There's a lot about dreams that we don't understand. I mean, Freud tried, but um, but it, it's interesting, this idea that like dreams, dreams can represent both the best stuff in life, but also the worst stuff and the ways in which dreams often try to tell us things about ourselves that may be wrong or maybe right, but they're kind of like expressions of that subconscious. I thought that was really interesting. Like the idea of like, do you really want to live in your dreams? Like, think about what some of your dreams have been. Like, as well, all of the worst things that have ever happened in in the world, like in all of history, every atrocity was dreamt up by someone. I think that's what the queen is getting at when she's like, well, this whole world is a dream. And she steals things out of dreams. And then that's the other thing, too, that made me think was this idea that, like, it, it comes up, actually, you know what? I'm going to read it because it comes up at the very end with Granny Weatherwax. And she, when she gives Tiffany the hat, you know, she makes a circle of air around Tiffany's hair and then brought her hand up over the head while making little movements with her forefinger. Tiffany raised her hands to her head. For a moment, she thought there was nothing there, and then they touched something. It was more like a sensation in the air. If you weren't expecting it to be there, your fingers passed straight through. Is it really there? She said. Who knows, said the witch. It's virtually a pointy hat. No one else will know it's there. It might be a comfort. You mean it just exists in my head, said Tiffany? You've got a lot of things in your head. That doesn't mean they aren't real. Best not to ask me too many questions. And that idea of like, just because something's in your head doesn't mean it's not real. That I think like links up with the dream stuff in some really interesting ways. Because like, there is this sense that we do enact the things that we dream right like things have to exist in your mind before they can exist in action and i think the Discworld highlights this because the Discworld is primarily made up of belief there's so many things that exist on the Discworld just because people believe in them and so that that to me was a really that made me think a lot about the way that our actions are often prompted by our beliefs because like tiffany said the key is the key is waking up he is like casting them off which is then an echo weirdly of something miss tick said i also think it's ironic that her first name is perspicacia which like like perspicacity is clear sight and like the ability to understand things and she doesn't really understand much um but she's but her advice to tiffany is that like oh if you follow your dreams and if you listen to your heart like if you set your entire store by them you're going to get bet by people who are up actually doing hard work and enacting things yeah, it's very interesting, like this idea of you can't just dream it, you have to do it. But there is a solid connection between those two things. The We Free Men, I feel like James Bond, like the We Free Men will return. <laughs> Tiffany Aching will return. We definitely have a lot more time with all of these characters. Um, there are three other books in this particular branch. So this is just the beginning of our adventures with Tiffany. But we are going to take a short break. Um, next episode... War breaks out in the tiny Discworld country of Borogravia in Monstrous Regiment. So we are going to read the book Monstrous Regiment. Ooh. We're going to talk about war. We're going to talk about a place that we haven't been before. It's going to be great. 
Where can people find you online in their headphones, Nigel? You can mainly find me. Oh, hold on. We had responses to Ooh, the Oh, yeah. Week. Read those first. Yeah. So we've only had really uh, two people respond. Hold on. No, sorry. Yeah. Two people respond, but we've got multiple responses. So at Earthbound Films says Carpe Jugulum would be kind of worth it because then you get the count and your choice of several wolves. <laughs> a picture of a wolf. But honestly, Garrett's Guards would be amazing. And of course, it's Vimes who is human, though Carrot is a very good candidate. I too. like it. Uh, that's a separate reply from Earthbound Films. And then third response from that user. Damn it. The choice is torture because torturing a human patrician in charge of a city of Muppets would be amazing. Yep, that's true. That would also be good. I like that. And then Ash World of Steve says, thinking anything with Rincewind as the non-Muppet, which I like. That would explain why Rincewind is constantly bewildered by everything. I feel like I'm visualizing him now in my head as Jason Siegel from that Muppets film. <laughs> yes, that would be perfect. I like these responses. Good job, people. You can find me on Twitter at Spicy Nigel, where I've actually, I actually tweeted about Jason Siegel. He's on your mind. <laughs> He's on your brain. Ago. Yeah, I said... I said, man, I love Jason Siegel. What a great actor. I just, he's great. Every single thing he's been in, I really like uh, that I've seen. Because I haven't seen How I Met Your Mother, but I understand he's in that. He is. He's a main character in that. That's what I primarily know him from. Uh huh. But his Muppets movie is also very good. Yeah. If you haven't watched it yet, this is my recommendation for people listening as well. Watch Dispatches from Elsewhere. On, uh, it was on AMC. It's really good. It's also got Richard E. Grant. Interesting. In it too who's one of my favorite actors. Where can we find you, Tessa? You can find me on Twitter at The Bi Paradox, and, and you will also find some writing from me on MovieJohn, moviejohn.com. That's movie, J-A-W-N. I recently, when this episode comes out, I will have just published an article on the day the Earth stood still. And, and I think by this point, when this episode comes out, I also will have published an article on Only Lovers Left Alive. So if you like either of those films, you can find that at Movie John. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. She paused, put the paddles down, and with the tip of a very clean finger, drew a curved line in the surface with another curved line just touching it. So that together they looked like a wave. She traced a third flat circle under it, which was the chalk. Land under wave. She quickly smoothed the butter again and picked up the stamp she'd made yesterday. She'd carved it carefully out of a piece of apple wood that Mr. Block, the carpenter, had given her. She stamped it into the butter and took it off carefully. There, glistening on the oily, rich yellow surface, was a gibbous moon and, sailing in front of the moon, a witch on a broomstick. She smiled again, and it was Granny Aching's smile. Things would be different one day, but you had to start small, like oak trees. Then she made cheese, in the dairy, on the farm, and the fields unrolling, and becoming the downlands sleeping under the hot midsummer sun, where the flocks of sheep moving softly drift over the short turf like clouds on a green sky, and here and there sheepdogs speed over the grass like shooting stars, forever and ever, walled without end. The End
Thank you.